Hey guys, welcome back to Late Night Murder. As always, we're your hosts. I'm Nicole. I'm Chase. And this week, we'll be covering the case of Psycho Sam. Trigger warning, this episode will contain descriptions and mentions of murder and decomposition. If the Thursday episodes aren't enough for you and you just need more content from Chase and I, you can head on over to Patreon where there's an entire back catalog of episodes that we release throughout the entire month. Thank you so much for rating and reviewing the podcast. We love seeing those and it helps us climb up the charts. The stars are for them and the words are for us. So if you haven't rated and reviewed the podcast yet, please go and do so. We're going to start this week's case off by talking about Richard Alden Samuel McCroskey III, who went by Sam. Oh man, that's a mouthful. A mouthful and a half, yeah. So we're just going to call him Sam throughout this story, though. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) So Sam was born on December 26, 1988 in Hayward, California, just east of like the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. Sam lived with his parents and his older sister, Sarah. All right. In 2003, the McCroskey family moved to Castro Valley, California, just three miles north of their previous residence. So like a tiny skip and a hop, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Years later, Sam's parents would split up in the summer of 2009. And even though the family was not very close, Sam took it really hard when his mom moved out of the family home at the request of his father. Okay. So while Sam would attend two different high schools as a teenager, he would drop out of both of them. All right. So this is because school was a horrific place for him as he was constantly ridiculed for being overweight and outcast and also having red hair. Well, that's not cool, man. Yeah, I know. Kind of shitty. Uh-huh. So Sarah, Sam's sister, described him as a very passive person and someone who would rarely stand up for himself. Okay. Kind of just to give you what Sam is, like who Sam is as a person. Okay. So is he, he's kind of a shy kid and that gets bullied. Yes. That's what we've got here. Mm-hmm. A bigger kid. Yeah. As a result of all of this bullying, Sam had very few friends and spent the majority of his time at home by himself. Okay. And as most of us millennials did in the late 2000s, early 2010s, Sam used social media, specifically MySpace... To escape from his reality. Oh, yes. The golden days of MySpace. The golden days. So in 2008, Sam was living at home, working as a part-time graphic designer, and also began dabbling in music, namely horrorcore rap. Interesting. Have you ever heard of that? Horrorcore rap? Yes. Yes, I have. Okay. I was going to say, you're a pretty big music buff. Like... Yep. Okay. So for those... Listeners who don't know what horrorcore rap is, and like myself, this is what Wikipedia defines it as. It's, quote, horrorcore is based on horror-themed and often darkly transgressive lyrical content and imagery. Its origins derive from the certain hardcore hip-hop and gangsta rap artists, which began to incorporate supernatural, occult, or psychological horror themes into their lyrics, end quote. Yeah. It's like rapping, but spooky. Yeah, well, it's... And, like, it's, it can be violent, too. Yeah, it's like it's like death metal, but it's rap. It's, like, very dark lyrics, yeah. Okay. 
So now that we kind of have a background on Sam, we're going to flip to the other side of the page and we're going to talk about Emma Niederbrock. Okay. So Emma Niederbrock was born on October 15, 1992 to Mark Niederbrock and Deborah Kelly in Champaign, Illinois. All right. The family moved from Illinois to Farmville, Virginia at a later date, and Mark began serving as a pastor at a Presbyterian church in Hicksburg, Virginia in 2003, while Deborah was a professor in sociology and criminal justice at Longwood University in Farmville. All right. So Emma had actually been a homeschooled kid since middle school. And like Sam's parents, at the beginning of 2009, Mark and Deborah would get a divorce. Emma ended up staying at the family home with her mother, and her father was the one to move out. Okay. So just like us as teenagers and Sam, Emma spent a lot of time on the internet, mainly MySpace, where her username was Ragdoll. All one word, just capital R-A-G, capital D-O-L-L. Sounds like a typical MySpace name, yeah. Especially in like 2009, 2008. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I was so mad my name started with an N because there was nothing cool. I think mine was like Nocturnal Nicole or something. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so Emma mainly used MySpace to listen to horrorcore rap and meet other fans of the genre. Oh, okay. So she's into that. Yeah, so she's a big fan of that. Um, MySpace was also used as a marketing tool for horrorcore rap. And you would be able to find out when and where upcoming music festivals would be for the music. Mm -hmm. So it's like Facebook now. Yeah. Like what events are nearby? Right. So in September of 2008, Emma, who was at the time 15, would meet an amateur horrorcore rapper, Richard Psycho Sam McCroskey, who was then 19 on MySpace. Okay. So his horrorcore rap name was Psycho Sam. Got it. And it's S-Y-K-O mm-hmm. to be different. Mm-hmm. Air quotes. Edgy. Edgy, yeah. So the two of them began chatting and getting to know each other, even taking things off the web and talking on the phone. A year later, Emma and Sam had been chatting pretty much daily this entire time. So at this point, Sam believed Emma to be his girlfriend. I mean, it kind of makes sense if you've been talking to someone for over a year daily. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. Not if you haven't met the person. I feel like that's weird. Emma had actually sent him affectionate messages, but it is unclear, like, how Emma felt the relationship was. Like, were they friends and she was just being very nice to him and, like, cared about him? Or did she want a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship? Okay. So while they had never met in person, it goes to say that they must have been close after talking so frequently. I mean, every day they are talking. Yeah, well, you would definitely get to know somebody that way. Yeah. So that's kind of Emma and Sam's relationship. Okay. So Serial Killin' Records. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's killin'. There's Mm -hmm. no G. Of course not. (laughs) The Serial Killin' Records hosted Strictly for the Wicked... And it was an all-day horrorcore music festival set to happen on September 12th, 2009. Okay. So now 16-year-old Emma was planning on attending the festival with her best friend Melanie Wells, who was 18 at the time and lived three and a half hours away Okay. from Emma. So they had been to so many of these festivals and they knew they were going to have a great time. Like, they go to them frequently together. They know they're going to 
enjoy it. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be like an all-day event kind of thing. Nice. It's like Warp Tour. Yeah. But for Horrorcore. Warp Tour, Horrorcore. Warp Tour, Horrorcore. <laughs> so Emma talked to Sam about this festival, and they deemed it would be a good place to finally meet up in person. Yeah. Seems safe. You know, there's lots of people there and stuff. Yeah. Well, Emma's parents did not think so. They were reluctant about this and were understandably worried about their 16-year-old meeting a 20-year-old man who she had met online. Mm, yeah. So either way, they wanted Emma to be happy, so Mark and Deborah decided that they would drive Emma and Melanie to the festival and hang out in the nearby city all day so that they could be close if she needed him, if she needed them. Nice. Yeah. Uh, this venue where the music festival was taking place was a 10-hour drive from where Emma lived. Holy cow, yeah. Yeah. Talk about craziness. I mean, we have driven eight hours to go see a band. Yeah, that's true. Okay, it's not as crazy anymore, I guess. <laughs> so but at this point, when this festival is happening, you have to keep in mind that Mark and Deborah are already divorced. So they're doing this literally for Emma. Yeah. Like they're going to be stuck in a car with each other for 10 hours. Yeah, that sounds pretty dreadful. Yeah. Would you want to be in a car with your ex for no. 10 hours? <laughs> Didn't even let me finish nope. this. <laughs> I don't blame you. So on September 6, 2009, Sam left California and headed towards Virginia because he's coming to the festival. Okay. So Emma was very excited to meet Sam and posted this message to his MySpace wall on September 7th. Mm-hmm. It said, quote, next time you check your MySpace, and then in all caps it says, you'll be at my house. I love you so, so much, baby, forever and for always, end quote. Okay, that seems pretty clear that there's, like, something more than friendship happening. Right. Definitely. Also, I thought that he was going to be, like, playing the festival or something. Oh, no, he, he he's a budding horrorcore artist. Oh, he's okay. not signed to the label. Okay. The label. There's more than one label like that. Yeah, I'm sure that there is, yeah. <laughs> so while the timeline isn't completely clear on Sam's arrival, it seems that he showed up either on the 7th or the 8th of September. Okay. Melanie would arrive at Emma's home on September 7th. So Melanie gets there the 7th. Sam gets there either the 7th or the 8th. And then the festival's on the 12th. Okay. So I'm not sure why Sam stayed at Emma's house for a few days before the concert. But I'm thinking it may have been for Deborah to get to know him and feel more comfortable with him. Yeah. Because, I mean, Sam stayed at Emma's house before they left to go to the festival. So. Okay. So when Emma first set eyes on Sam, let's talk about this first meeting. Mm-hmm. When Emma first set her eyes on Sam, she was not impressed. Oh, shit. That's not good. She had been catfished in a way. Oh, no. Seeing Sam in real life made Emma realize that he had altered his appearance in his MySpace photos. Oh, shit. Call Nev. She needs him. Yeah, yeah. So in real life, he looked totally different than his photos. Not only did he appear to be younger than 20, he was actually quite short, as Sam also showed up wearing an oversized black hoodie with baggy black cargo pants, and his red hair was greasy and combed straight down his forehead. Interesting. You remember that hairstyle that people did? It was like the wet look, but it was just because it was greasy and they just went... No, I don't. I I, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, I've seen it. So Emma did not find him attractive. 
with all of this lumped together, she was like, mm, actually, okay, no, so, thank you. So not not good. We're, that's not good. Yeah, she's not digging it. So along with his appearance not matching his age, Emma found Sam to be immature, like a teenage boy, really, rather than a 20-year-old. Okay. So even though Emma was no longer attracted to Sam, she was polite to him, but that's about as far as it went. If she had wanted a relationship with Sam before meeting him, those feelings had quote-unquote left the chat. Ah, I see what you did there. Well, that's weird that she wouldn't pick up on his immature personality. I guess he's just very careful about hiding that type of thing and trying to impress her or something. That's really weird, though. Possibly. I feel like you would... Man, that would be hard to keep that up for a whole year Mm -hmm. of talking every day, you know? The five of them, Mark, Deborah, Emma, Melanie, and Sam, were in for a long and awkward car ride to the festival. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, you have Emma, who isn't attracted to Sam like she thought she was. You have Mark and Deborah, who are divorced and now in a car for 10 hours. And you have Melanie, who probably is feeling all of it. Like, she's just the friend. Yeah, she's just sitting there like, oh, God, this is terrible. Good Lord, I'm sure she feels awkward, too. Melanie needed to... It's just the whole car ride, no one says a word. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And then, you know, the parents probably weren't into hardcore core rap. Oh, yeah, So they were playing, like, the radio station, and the kids are just Just completely silent. Everybody's not saying a word. I can can feel the, the, the tension there. I know, it'd be horrible. So the drive from Emma's house in Farmville, Virginia, to Southgate, Michigan, where the festival was being held, was around 10 hours without any stops, like we had said. Oh, my God. And it's just 10 hours... It's just 10 hours straight, not including bathroom breaks or anything. Oh, Lordy. Okay. So the festival doors opened around 1 p.m. on September 12th, and Sam was really banking on when they got there and got immersed in the music and were really being themselves, that Emma would change her mind about him. Oh, yeah, when she sees him vibing. Yeah. She's just going to forget both... that, that, that he catfished her. <laughs> yeah. They're both, like, just vibing to the music, and she's like, oh, actually, I might kind of like you. Mm-hmm. However, festival attendees said that Emma paid little to no attention to Sam throughout the entire event. Oh, man. Not only did she seem not interested in him, she was also seen flirting and texting with other guys during the event, which made Sam angry. Shit. So the festival ended around 11 p.m. on September 12th, and the following day, all five of the troop went back to Farmville, Virginia. Made the 10-hour drive back. Yikes. So if it wasn't awkward on the way to the festival, it's awkward on the way home. Yeah, plus you got the fact that, that she's not been into him the whole time at the festival. Now that that's factored into it, too. Yeah, because that was like his one thing. He's like, oh, maybe we, when we get to the festival, she'll like me. Yeah. So they got back on September 13th, and at 2.43 a.m. on September 14th, technically... Melanie posted to her MySpace and said, quote, SFTW was fucking amazing. Back in Virginia now. Be back in West Virginia on Wednesday. I miss everyone. All caps. End quote. All right. And then, of course, SFTW is strictly for the wicked, the festival. Mm-hmm. So after this post, Melanie actually goes quiet online. Neither friends nor family hear from her at all that Monday or Tuesday, which was very unlike her. Mm-hmm. On Wednesday, September 16th, Melanie's parents, Thomas and Kathleen, became worried when they were still unable to reach their daughter. 
if you remember when she posted a MySpace, she's like, oh, I'll be back on Wednesday. I miss everybody. Right. So when Melanie did not come home by Wednesday, the day she had planned on returning, Thomas, her dad, drove the 200 miles, the three and a half hour drive to Farmville to check on her. Mm-hmm. Nobody answered the door when Thomas came to Deborah and Emma's house, and Thomas just sat in his car and waited outside the home to see if anyone would return. Was like, there a car there? I don't know. Okay. So he's just sitting there waiting to see if there's anybody in the house. Yeah. Anybody comes out, everybody goes in, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they could have had a garage or something there. Yeah. So after waiting around seven hours in his car mm-hmm. to see if anyone would was coming or going from the house, Thomas was sure no one would be coming if they hadn't already. So reluctantly, he drives away from Emma's house and leaving with a horrible feeling in his gut that something was wrong. So Thomas returns home empty-handed and then Melanie's mom starts calling everybody who may know where Melanie is. Okay. And she had already called Emma's house multiple times. No one picked up. She's messaged Melanie on, like, MySpace. She's calling all the friends. She's calling everybody she may know. Okay. So we're going to put a tiny pin in that for a brief second, and we're going to talk a little more about serial killing records. Okay. Serial Killin' Records is a small independent record label owned by Andres, Andres Schrimm, who, okay. who is based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And if you remember, Serial Killin' Records hosted that Strictly for the Wicked festival that Melanie, Emma, and Sam had attended back on September 12th. Uh-huh. Andres, the owner of this record label, even writes and performs his own horrorcore rap under the name Sick Tanic. I know this artist. No, you don't. Yeah. Okay, well, he owns Serial Killing Records. Okay. Like, you know him or you know of him? I know of him. Oh, okay. Is that why you made that face? Yeah. I had a buddy that was very, very into his music, specifically. Okay. Oh, well, he pops in the story a little bit. Interesting. I wonder if I know more about this than I thought. Maybe you do. I think I might. Oh, jeez. Okay, so that was the, we can pull the pin back out. We're going to go back into the hunt for Melanie now. Okay. After some of Melanie's mom's own investigation, she was able to find a phone number for Andres and gave him a call. Okay. He told Kathleen that he had seen Melanie, Emma, and Sam at that festival, and when the festival ended, they all left with Emma's parents and that he did not have any more information for her. Okay. He did tell Kathleen that if he found out anything else, he would give her a call to let her know. Really sweet guy. Yeah. So after she hung up with Andres, Kathleen decided to call Emma's house once again. Because remember, she's called this house multiple times and no one is picking up. Right. So this time, however, to her surprise, someone picked up the phone. Can you guess who it was? Was it Sam? It was Sam. Ah, of course. Kathleen asked Sam where Melanie was, but he wouldn't give her a straight answer. So at this, Kathleen got really frustrated and was pretty sure Sam was hiding something. And if you're going to take one thing away from this entire podcast, it's trust your fucking gut. Always. So that next morning on Thursday, September 17th, Kathleen called the police in Farmville, Virginia and explained the entire situation. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, hey, my daughter went to this festival. She was supposed to come back on the 16th. It's now the 17th. I haven't heard a single thing from her. 
Uh, I keep trying to call her friend's house and some guy answered and wouldn't give me a straight answer on where Melanie was. Yeah, he's like the only person that they did not want to hear answer the phone. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, if it was Emma, Emma's mom, Melanie, totally fine. Yeah. But the random, like, the, the guy that yeah. came from California to go to this music festival with a 16 and an 18-year-old and ended up catfishing the 16-year-old and yada yada. Yep. And so Kathleen, after explaining the situation, asked police to go and do a welfare check on the home just to kind of calm her fears. She's like, you know, even if Melanie doesn't want to talk to me, that's fine because she's technically 18. She's an adult. She can go missing if she wants on purpose. Right. Like she can just cut off communication with all of her family. So when police arrived at Emma's home, they were greeted by none other than Richard Sam McCroskey. Yep. Okay. So police asked Sam where Melanie, Emma, and Deborah are, because it seems that Sam is the only one in the home. Yeah. He told them that they had gone to the movies. Yeah, and they just left him to watch the house, huh? Yeah. Okay. Police took his word for this, and they left. Get out of here. I'll get out, but the story doesn't change. Oh, man. Okay. He doesn't, he's not even from there. Yeah, so while it may seem weird that police didn't do any more investigating at this point, like I said, Melanie is an 18-year-old, so she is technically an adult. And the police also didn't know that Sam was not a regular resident of the house, so they didn't have a reason to be suspicious of why he was there on his own. Okay, I guess that makes sense. And it's said that he also told police, oh, I'm Emma's boyfriend, they just went out for a girl's day, like, they'll be back later. Okay. After this welfare check had turned up nothing, Kathleen called Mark, who is Emma's father. Yeah. Remember, he lives outside of the home because of the divorce. So Kathleen explains to Mark that she is worried about Melanie, who was supposed to have come home the previous day and still hadn't contacted her. Mark lived only about 20 minutes away, so he told Kathleen he would go to Farmville and see what was going on. He's like, oh, don't worry about it. I'll go check it out. I'll go. I'll swing by the house myself. Mm-hmm. So this phone call between the two happened around 5 p.m. on Thursday. Okay. On Friday the next day, September 18th, Kathleen had had enough. You know, she was at her wit's end. She's just going to go check it out herself, huh? Well, her husband had gone and wasn't able to even see anyone in the home. The police did a welfare check, and Sam assured police things were fine. And Mark had never called Kathleen back from the night before. Right. So with all of this, Kathleen phoned the police again, and while I'm not sure if she tried to file a missing persons report or what exactly she said, but she was able to convince police to go back to the house to do another welfare check. Okay. So when police arrive at the house around 3.20 p.m., they find the front door to be unlocked. Okay. So Sam, who was there the previous day and had talked to police, was no longer there. Mm-hmm. When police entered the house, like when they opened the door, because it was unlocked, mm-hmm. they were hit with a stench as heavy as a ton of bricks. Oh, shit. And the stench was the quote-unquote thick, pungent, unmistakable stench of death. Yeah. So the stench is what gave police probable cause to enter the home under the pretenses that someone was in danger or in need of help. Okay. Inside the home, police find three deceased bodies in what would later be noted as Emma's bedroom downstairs. Mm-hmm. 
and with the discovery of the bodies, police were granted a search warrant and were able to perform a full search of the home, like top to bottom, nook and cranny. Right. While conducting this search, police discovered yet another body in a room upstairs. Oh, shit. So we have four bodies. And these bodies would be later confirmed to belong to Melanie Wells, Deborah Kelly, Mark, and Emma Niederbrock. Oh, shit. So this scene was described by police as being so horrifying that they would not elaborate on details other than the victims had died from blood force trauma. Oh, damn it. Yeah. After going through all of the evidence inside the home and checking the social media accounts of both Melanie and Emma, it did not take police long at all to figure out Sam had been with them at the festival, had come back to Farmville with them, and was now nowhere to be found. Okay, good. Let's go get him then. Yeah, a man hunt for Richard Sam McCroskey was declared. Good. So let's rewind just a titch. Earlier that morning on Friday, mm-hmm. before police had found the bodies, a homeowner in Farmville called to report a car that had gotten stuck in a ditch at the end of the driveway. Okay. So a tow truck and a deputy show up to this house, and Sam is given a ticket for driving without a license. Huh. When asked about whose car he put in the ditch, he responded with, quote, it was my girlfriend's dad's car, end quote. Oh, shit. Okay. So while talking to this deputy, Sam mentioned that he had plans to fly home the following day on Saturday. Remember, he lives in California. Right. So he, while chatting with the deputy, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm just heading back to California on Saturday from this car stuck ditch scene the tow truck driver drove sam to a gas station recalling this time the tow driver stated that he had never come across this smell as terrible and rank as that attached to sam huh he said he even had to hold his head out of the window to stop himself from vomiting holy shit the driver described it as quote he stunk like the devil end quote good lord yeah so up to this point, it seems that Sam had gotten pretty lucky, you know, evading the police and ultimately any responsibility for these crimes. Yeah, hopefully not for long. So after getting a ticket for driving without a license and getting dropped off at the gas station by the tow truck driver, Sam had caught a cab to Richmond International Airport the evening of Friday. And his plan was ultimately to spend the night in the airport and then catch a flight back to California that next day. Okay. However, when the deputy who had given Sam a ticket earlier in the day on Friday saw he was a wanted man, he told the other officers about his plans to fly back to California. Right. That's good. So are they going to catch him before he gets on the plane then? Wouldn't you like to know? Yes. Early on Saturday morning, police apprehended Sam, who had been sleeping in a chair in the baggage claim area at Richmond International Airport. They got him. Yep. He was initially charged with Mark Niederbrock's murder, grand larceny of stealing Mark's car, and robbery for taking money from Mark's wallet. Okay. Don't worry, more charges are to follow. Well, yeah, I should suppose, I mean, I would hope so. So on Monday, September 21st, the local sheriff's office served a search warrant to the McCroskey home in Castro Valley, California. They were there to collect phones, computers, and pretty much anything and everything tied or connected to Richard. Okay. Also, I'm no longer calling him Sam. He doesn't get a nickname now. Okay. So he is Richard from here on out. Okay. 
After news of his arrest had spread around, his family and friends were in total disbelief. His older sister, Sarah, said that at the first news of hearing this, she couldn't believe it. However, the more she thought about it, the more it became a possibility for her. She said, quote, I just fell to my knees. I couldn't see. I couldn't talk. I feel I failed as his big sister, end quote. Which no. stinks for her, but. True. Not your fault. Your brother's a psychopath. Yeah. So Sarah would later say that she had sensed that something was off when Richard called home and left a message on September 17th, uh-huh. which is that Thursday, so the f- date of the first welfare check. Got it. So during this voicemail that Richard had left, he said he wanted to make sure, quote, everyone was okay, end quote. And before he hung up, he even said, I love you guys. And that was out of the ordinary for him, I'm assuming. Yeah, so according to Sarah, this was not a normal thing whatsoever for Richard to say, especially out of the blue. All right. So let's indict him, shall we? Yeah, let's get put throw, him at, throw his ass in there. Let's do something. So on October 19th, 2009, Richard McCroskey was indicted on six counts of capital murder, one for each of his victims, Emma, Melanie, Deborah, and Mark, as well as capital murder for murdering multiple people within three years. Which I didn't know was a charge. Yeah, that's an interesting charge. Yeah. Hmm. So obviously the evidence against him is overwhelming. Yeah, I would say. So his court-appointed attorney pretty much told him that his goose was fucking cooked. He said, we need to reach a plea deal in order for you not to get the death penalty. (laughs) Goddamn. Yeah, okay. I mean, when your defense attorney is like... When your own lawyer is telling you that, you're like, oh, shit, I really am screwed here. Yeah. I mean, deservedly, but... Definitely. Rightfully so, because you're a horrible human being. Right. So nearly a year later, on September 20th, 2010, Richard pled guilty to two counts of capital murder and two counts of first-degree murder, while also waiving his right to appeal. Okay. What do you think he got sentenced? A lot. I fucking hope the whole, the rest of it, all of it, a couple hundred years. He was, he was sentenced to four life sentences in prison. All right. There we go. Prosecuting attorney Jim Ennis had this to say about Richard's motives for the murders. Quote, I think he had a certain expectation of the relationship with Emma Niederbrock, what it was going to be like after a year on the computer, and it did not turn out to be what he imagined it was going to be like. End quote. Sorry, I don't feel bad for you. Mm-hmm. So the families of the victims declined to speak to the media at that time, but they did issue a written statement expressing their relief that the case was over and that they believed justice had been done. Okay. Richard did not say anything during or after the hearing. There was a photo of Richard as he left the courtroom and was being escorted back to prison to begin serving his sentence, and he was actually seen smirking in this photo. Gross. So he doesn't even feel bad about it. He's not He's not apologetic. He's got nothing to say about it. Pretty much. So residents of Farmville really questioned whether Richard really felt the remorse that his defense attorney claimed that he had because of this. Yeah. Where is it? Where is the remorse at? Exactly. So Richard McCroskey is currently incarcerated at Wallens Ridge State Prison in Big Stone Gap, Virginia. Okay. Do you want to know what Richard says happened? In all of this tomfuckery? I suppose. 
So after the hearing, Richard's lawyer released his statements to the media regarding what had happened to Melanie, Emma, Mark, and Deborah. Richard's motive for the murders was his rage towards Emma for rejecting him at the music festival. And Mark, Deborah, and Melanie were just, quote-unquote, at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, that sounds like it's just full of remorse. Isn't it? So Richard had been drinking and smoking marijuana with his blood boiling because of everything that happened at the festival. He was just getting more and more angry as he became more and more influenced. That's crazy. Yeah. So Melanie was actually killed first while she slept on the couch in the den. Richard then went upstairs to kill Deborah in a separate room. And finally, he went back downstairs to kill Emma. God, what the fuck, dude? All three women were killed in the early hours of September 15th with a ball-peen hammer. Fuck. According to autopsy results, none of the women awoke during their attacks as there were no defensive wounds found. Fucking yeah. piece of shit, man. God damn. Mm-hmm. So from around 3 a.m. on September 15th, To around 5 p.m. on September 17th, Richard sat in the home with with the dead bodies of these three women. What a fucking weirdo. You know, if he gets that terrible just because he was rejected, I can't imagine what a relationship with that man would have been like. Right? It would have been terrifying. Yeah. No shit. That's crazy. That time that Richard spent in this house with three dead bodies is when that first welfare check was done. And Richard told police that the women were out to the movies. I figured. I mean, on this podcast, you know. Yeah, I know. I, I, I no one's at the movies. Not, yeah, I did not think they were at the movies. You're not at the movies and you didn't eat bad sushi. Trust your gut and no one's at the movies. Yep. So when Mark showed up on the 17th or at around 5 p.m. to Emma's house, because remember, he was going to check for Kathleen. Mm-hmm. So he shows up to check on Melanie's whereabouts. He was ambushed and beaten to death with an eight-pound wood-splitting maul. Ugh. Richard said that he used this maul to kill Mark because he believed the weight of it would mean that Mark would not suffer. It's a fucking axe. Yeah, I mean, that he was doing him a convenience at that point. Yeah. Fucking psycho, man. After murdering Mark, Richard drug Mark and Melanie's body into Emma's room, because remember, three of them were found in Emma's room. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, this shit stain decided to then clean up the den and even recorded a video of himself. In this video, he stated that he would have to pay for the consequences of his actions and contemplated suicide. Uh-huh. At around 3.45 a.m. on September 18th, that Friday, he fled the home in Mark's car after stealing the cash from his wallet. And this is when the car got stuck in the ditch and police gave him a ticket. Uh-huh. So another thing about Shitstain Richard... When he was apprehended at the airport, a reporter asked him why he did it, and in true shithead fashion, he said, quote, Jesus made me do it, end quote. And I think he did that just for shock factor and, like, to stir up some shit, because this truly fucked with Mark's entire church congregation, because remember, he was a pastor. Yeah. And they were quick to rebut this. It's like... It's like Sam knew he was caught, so he tried to make himself into, like, this big, bad monster for a 
longer 15 minutes of fame yeah, you know he was trying to make himself yeah mm-hmm. yep makes sense so following these murders there was a massive public outcry over horrorcore rap being responsible for influencing richard and i mean it's like saying everyone who listens to true crime will end up murdering someone yep same thing just like the like the satanic panic and heavy metal music and all that stuff they they always try to go after the the bands that sing about this type of shit you know yeah no for real and Andres Shrim, the owner of Serial Killin' Records, had this to state about that entire matter. He said, quote, You look at the music we do, and it's kind of harsh and somewhat brutal at times, but there's a different side of life that people aren't normally accustomed to. And being an artist, I think it's important to see both sides of life, end quote. I like that. Yeah, and I mean, despite the music being morbid, the fans themselves are not violent people. It's like that with metal music, like you were saying. Yep. Uh, like, we're both fans of metal music, have been to many metal shows and we have met the nicest people at these shows yep i mean i've been to country concerts and those people are straight fucking assholes (laughs) metal shows though nicest fucking people yep so at the end of the day i really think richard wasn't influenced by jack shit he just selfishly murdered these people because he didn't like that emma did not like him and was talking to other guys He was bitter and enraged that things hadn't worked out how he wanted them or had planned them to. I agree with that. So, yeah. Asshole. Shit stain. Definitely an asshole. I hate it when people try and blame music for that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that that he's in there forever. Yeah, no, he is. Four life sentences. He has waived his right to appeals. He's in there. Yeah, so that's the story of Psycho Sam. And don't blame music. Yeah, don't blame music for that shit. Blame these shitheads for making the music look bad. Takeaways from this week's episode is, one, trust your gut, B, no one's ever at the movies, and C, morbid music and violent music doesn't make you violent and morbid. Thank you. All right. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) If you enjoyed this week's episode, please don't hesitate to rate and review the podcast. We love seeing all of the stars as well as all of the reviews that you write stars are for the charts that help us climb up in the charts and make it to where we can make more content for you guys bring you more cases and the words are for us if you guys want more content you're always welcome to check out the patreon we've got quite a few episodes up there now so go check that out to stay up to date on everything happening at late night murder podcast be sure to follow us on facebook instagram and tiktok at late night murder podcast and you can also follow along on twitter at ln murder podcast If you have a case that you would like us to cover, whether you've heard it a million times, if you just want to hear our take on it, or if it's a case that hasn't been covered a lot and you really feel like it needs that public attention, we'd be so happy and so, so honored to cover it. So please go to the link in our bios on any of our social medias and you'll be able to submit that case for us. You can listen to Late Night Murder Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Join us next week as we will be covering the case of Maddie Clifton. Hey guys, till next time. Bye. Bye.